Doug Tyrrell History and Comment is available on Google Podcast. Hello, friends. I'm Doug Tyrrell. This is History and Comment for Thursday, the 15th day of June, 2023. The modern region of northern Iraq and eastern Syria was an important area in ancient times. In 763 BC, the Assyrians record a solar eclipse. Since this date can be calculated, this has allowed historians to link dates in their history to modern dates. The eclipse would have been late in the time of Jonah. You might recall that Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh and instead took off the other way. Nineveh is in the region of Assyria. The concept of consent of the governed takes a major step forward in 1715. King John of England puts his seal on the Magna Carta. Considered the first document to list rights of the people, Magna Carta, if you've not figured out, is Latin. The full name is Magna Carta Libertatum, or Great Charter of Freedoms. The first recorded human blood transfusion is given in 1667. The patient was a 10-year-old boy, and the donor was a sheep. Benjamin Franklin is known for flying a kite in a storm and proving that lightning is electricity an experiment that easily could have gotten him killed. That's in 1752, and today is the traditional date, though the exact date is unknown. The Continental Congress is still in session, and since they formed an army yesterday in 1775, today they appoint George Washington to lead it. For a couple of years, between 1798 and this day in 1780, the United States actually had two armies. The regular army of the United States and the Provisional Army. The concern was there was a need for a larger force, and there were concerns that the regular army was getting too large and powerful. Older brother of French Emperor Napoleon, Joseph Bonaparte, becomes King of Spain in 1808. Of course, younger brother was on a rampage to conquer Europe, so he appoints Joseph to the position. The process to treat rubber with heat and strengthen it is patented in 1844 by Charles Goodyear. The term we still use is Vulcanization. Vulcan was the Roman god of fire, volcanoes, the forge, and metalworking. The Pacific Northwest has a long history of border issues between the U.S. and Britain. The Treaty of 1818 that settled much of the question after the War of 1812 only set the border to the Rocky Mountains. The area between the Rockies and the Pacific Ocean was jointly governed by both the U.S. and Britain for a number of years. It's not like the region was easily accessible by either party. But the situation grew steadily more difficult as the population increased. Britain wanted sole control of everything down to present-day Oregon-California border, and some in the states were advocating that we control everything up to Alaska, which was Russian at the time. Initially, Britain rejected the idea of extending the 49th parallel further west to the coast. In the end, that's exactly what happened. But like all legal documents, there are cases that do not fit the rule. The 1846 document attempted to address the islands in the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the southern tip of Vancouver Island. But the maps of the day were poorly drawn and the legal description was vague. On this day in 1859, a second treaty was signed that further defined the U.S.-British border. We have talked about Civil War cavalry tactics. The South was far ahead of the North in this area. Jeb Stewart and Nathan Bedford Forrest are the two names that often come up in discussions. 
Both were rather flamboyant and often were allowed to act on their own as an independent command. I cannot think of a Union cavalry commander that ever rose to the same level. Grierson in Mississippi might be close. On this day in 1862, Jeb Stuart led his Gray Cavaliers on a recon ride completely around the Union Army led by General George B. McClellan. McClellan was at the time head of the Army of the Potomac and had a bit of cavalry experience prior to the war, but he had forgotten most of that. He was a great organizer and well-liked by the soldiers, but poor on execution. The latter issue will cause a running feud with Mr. Lincoln. The guy always seemed to draw controversy, but a claim at the same time. Just prior to the Civil War, McClellan had spent time in Europe and was an observer in the Napoleonic Wars. He brought back a cavalry saddle design that the Army adopted in 1859. The troopers disliked it, but no one ever came up with a better version. There will be three modifications, one early in the Civil War, again in the 1870s, and the last in 1904. The Army will be using the same design when horse cavalry was disbanded in the early days of World War II. Arlington National Cemetery is often considered the most sacred land in America, and that might well be justified. It was established on this day in 1864. There is a good bit of history prior to that. Arlington Estate was home of George Washington Park Custis, the son of Martha Washington from an earlier marriage, making him the foster son of George Washington. The construction of Arlington House began in 1804 as the home of Custis, and a memorial to George Washington. Custis had one surviving daughter who married a respectable Army officer and Virginian by the name of Robert E. Lee. Lee's pedigree was as well-respected as was Mary Custis. The two were living in the house for a few years prior to the Civil War, and it was with this commanding view of the District of Columbia that Lee debated his future in the Army. As tensions increased, the family fled the property as it was soon taken into federal control. In 1864, Mary Custis had sent an agent to pay $92.07 in taxes due. The payment was refused as it was not by the owner in person. The federal government bought the property later in the year at a tax sale. Part of the site's desirable characteristics for a cemetery were it was on high ground and not prone to flooding, and it was an affront to General Lee. Lee's son, the legal heir through his grandfather's will to the property, sued the federal government in 1874, and the case eventually went to the Supreme Court, who ruled 5-4 to four that the property was seized without due process, and it was returned to Lee. Lee then resold it to the government in 1883. Edward Mugridge was a somewhat eccentric character born in England. He took an interest in photography of motion. He was 49 years old on this day in 1878 when he used 12 cameras to take a series of photos. Mugridge had been funded by Leland Stanford, who was curious about the question of during a gallop at any time, did a horse have all four hooves off the ground? Stanford had the money and Mugridge spent three years developing the techniques and equipment. Stanford also was a railroad executive and provided railroad expertise and labor to support the project. The answer is yes. A couple of the frames show the animal has all four hooves off the ground. All four legs operate independently, contacting the ground at different times. 
The Boy Scouts receive a federal charter on this day in 1916. There is a very serious conversation about the Boy Scouts, how anything the left touches, it destroys. Society could use an institution that provides boys a stable figure with high morals and a sense of place and adventure. Traditionally, that was by a father. But we've ditched that as an archaic idea. So why are the Boy Scouts in rapid decline? Inclusivity, pedophilia, and gay rights. We cannot provide boys with a place to be boys and learn in a structured framework without sexualizing it. Sadly, the Girl Scouts are even worse. The first Boeing aircraft, a seaplane, flies in 1916. On this day in 1917, in a move to extend an olive branch, the British government grants amnesty to Irish prisoners taken during the Easter Uprising the year before. That does not count the 16 they had already executed. The British seem to have been a bit harsh in reactions to Irish resistance. The most visited national park opens in 1934. Part of that is due to the fact that nearly half the U.S. population lives within a day's drive of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Bob Dylan is in the Columbia Records studio in New York City in 1965. He's trying to record like a Rolling Stone. He had a habit of sitting at a typewriter and letting his thoughts flow. He describes the origins of the song as 10 to 20 pages of vomit from which he distilled it down to four verses. Originally, the song was being recorded in 3-4 time and was not working. The next day, a more rock beat was tried, and the song as we know it was born. Still, Columbia was not happy and felt the song was too long and did not want to release it as a single, until a leaked copy was gaining interest. The entire recording session can be found on the album set, The Bootleg Series, Volume 12. The television show Hee Haw premieres on CBS in 1969. NBC had Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Laugh-In was saturated with pop culture and music. It was edgy and disdained in some circles, but quite popular in others. CBS created Hee Haw with a similar format, but focused on country music and themes. It was largely popular across middle America and did quite well in the major markets. It was filmed in Nashville, Tennessee, as opposed to to beautiful downtown Burbank. Laugh-In ran for 140 episodes, Hee Haw for 655. There was a message there. Maybe the executives at a couple of major corporations should learn this. Middle America, Apple Pie, and Mom will always win out in the long term. The same thing applies to the film industry. Our movies win awards, but G and PG will always outsell them. The chances of an R movie being a financial loss is much greater. The top lifetime grossing R-rated film is The Passion of Christ. That alone says something. And still, that only ranks number 54 on the overall list. Number 2 falls to 60, and by the time you get to Beverly Hills Cop at number 10, it's only number 160 on the overall list. John Denver releases his eighth studio album, Back Home Again, in 1974. Hardly a greatest hits list, but not bad in the least. It includes Annie's song, Thank God I'm a Country Boy, and Sweet Surrender. Several of the other cuts are recognizable. The Disney film The Lion King opens in theaters in 1994. It will make it to number 15 on the all-time grossing list. 
I came across a piece I wrote a few years back, and it bears repeating. I'm going to go off on one of my favorite subjects and make an outspoken statement. The American Civil War was maybe the worst possible solution to the slavery issue that could have been imagined. The complete and immediate emancipation of the African population was simply inhumane. Add to this the fact that the southern economy had been decimated by four years of war, nearly all of it on southern soil. If you completely remove the slave cotton component from the southern economy, everything else was nearly destroyed also. Now, into this desolation, you add a very large percentage of people who are poorly educated and had few skills in independent living. Compound an already bad situation with a couple of additional facts. There was the Darwin issue. Yeah, Charles Darwin, who published a book in 1850 that was The Scientific Rage. In there, he purported that the African may have been the missing link in his theory. There was serious thought that they were subhuman. Add in the sprung factor, where any repressed person or group will overreact when given freedom. The impact of the war on the entire country was profound beyond what we can really comprehend today. The population of the U.S. in 1860 was about 31 million. The common figure for deaths in the war is 650,000, but that figure is believed to be low because of poor records. The true figure may be as high as 850,000. The 650 number is about one person in 47. That's an average. The ratio was much higher in the South. That does not count the disabilities from wounds and what we would call today PTSD. And there were political factions that pressed to punish the South for the war. The entire Andrew Jackson impeachment was over post-war policy and the desire by some to continue repressing the South. Take all of this into consideration and add in a healthy dose of human nature during stress, and it's no wonder we have issues 158 years later. A much more workable solution would have been a gradual change, starting first with basic education. Agricultural mechanization in the 1920s and 30s would have made hand-picking and hand-field work much less of a necessity. The point is, we are fighting today issues that are extremely deep-seated and do not have simple solutions. It's only a band-aid on a deep ulcer to say we are all one and just need to get along. We're attempting to unify two very different cultures, one of which still harbors the ill effects of poor policy from a century and a half ago. Those ill feelings are not an impossible obstacle. But the third faction is a group of people who thrive on the discord and have ulterior motives that can be furthered by pitting the two sides against each other. America is the greatest melting pot the world has ever known. Maybe no place since the Tower of Babel has so many people been able to come together and live in relative harmony. To make this work, we have to focus on our similarities and not our differences. That's History and Comment for the 15th day of June. I'm Doug Terrell. Now, go do something worth remembering. <laughs>